Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to be looking at and reading verses 9 through 25. I've told you guys already that, that well, I believe Paul wrote Hebrews. Um, I'm in good company in that, but not everybody agrees. But I've told you already that, that this um, section of the letter from chapter 5 verse 1 through chapter 10 verse 18 is a long doctrinal exposition. And at the end of that long doctrinal exposition, laying out who Christ is as our great high priest, uh, as the one who, in whom the new covenant has been cut, after laying that out, it's a great sacrifice that's been offered, the once for all time sacrifice. After saying all of that, he then turns to application, exhortation. If this is true, here's what you do with that. And this whole section really 10, 19 through 39 um, is driving into that, and then chapter 11 is going to pick up on some of the themes in 10, 19, 39, saying, what does that mean? What is faith and hope, et cetera? And they're going to define how you see that in the Old Testament. But um, in this sentence, we've started in last week, 19 through 25, that will continue in the next few weeks. He's really laying out what he wants the church to do with this. If this gospel's true, then, then what do we do in response to that? Um, And last week, I spent time talking about the church's foundation, that the one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. And we see that in verses 19 through uh, 21 specifically, that we have one who's made the final sacrifice by which we draw near to God. So we can confidently draw near to God, not in and of ourselves, but in Christ, because he's made that sacrifice in his blood. And two, that Christ is our great high priest. So he's constantly ministering on our behalf, interceding for us all the time. And so we have these, these sort of two great promises that Christ is our great high priest who has made a once-for-all sacrifice as the foundation of what it is to be the church. That really is the foundation of the church by which we gather to worship. And I said as I laid that foundation that I want to take some more time to, to build these ideas out. And the reason I want to do that is we're really in the midst of starting a building campaign, not a building campaign that we were planning to start. Uh, we, we actually had one conversation in January. Maybe we should get a building committee together again. <laughs> so who knew? Um, I'm not calling us prophets by any stretch of the imagination. It was just a random thought, not an actual something bad's coming. So <laughs> here we are. Uh, now we've gone through this time, this realization, we've got to find a long-term church home, one that we own Um, So we don't have to beg people for use of their space, right? Not because we have to own a building to be a church. You're going to keep hearing me say this, and I'm going to ground that again some more today. We do not have to own a building to be a church, just like you don't have to own a home to be a family. But oftentimes, as a family, you decide it would be much wiser for us to own a home than to keep renting, particularly when the landlord, namely your governor, keeps kicking you out of your rental, right? At some point, you think, I got to buy something. So that's why we're doing a building campaign. But in the midst of that, I don't want us to forget what a church is and what our foundation is and what all that means. So we're in this series. So look with me at Hebrews 10 and verse 19. And really today's sermon, you might call an excursus. So if you're reading a commentary on a book of the Bible, You'll, you'll be reading through a commentary and 
as you're reading, it's expositing each verse. It's saying, verse 19, here's what the author means, blah, 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 blah. Verse 20, here's what the author means, blah, blah. And then all of a sudden, you'll come to some terminology or some idea, and he'll say, here's an excursus. I'm going to actually take a couple pages just to talk about this idea, because if you don't understand this idea, you might miss some of the things the author assumes that you know as he's making his overall argument. So today's sermon is more like an excursus than it is an exposition. He uses a couple words, and I thought, we better talk about what those words mean as we continue on. Um, So look at verse 19, Hebrews 10, verse 19 through 25. I'll read the whole thing as it is actually in the Greek, one sentence. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray. Father, we ask that you would bless the reading and teaching of your word, that your spirit would be at work so that we would hear what it is that he's saying to the church. We know that our Lord and Savior, the head of the church, Jesus Christ, has spoken by his spirit in his word. We want to hear this as such. Father, we ask that as we look at this text today, as we consider really these terms that we're brothers, that we're a part of the house of God, as we consider what it is to be the church, what the identity of the church is, that you would give us clarity of thought, that we would listen well, that you'd be honored in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you all know that we live in an era revolving around individual, where we revolve our identity around individual characteristics. When we start talking about the issue of who am I, what's my identity, we start getting into all sorts of individual characteristics. Uh, What's my family origin? If you don't know that that's a big deal, then you haven't paid attention to all of the things on television selling you genetic packs in which you can find out what your family history is. What's my skin color? I don't have to make out for for you all. That's a big deal right now. What are my talents? What sorts of talents do I have? See, I'm really, I'm not good at, oh, I have no talents. So anything I mention is not about me. I'm really good at surfing. I'm a surfer. Like I identify myself by some kind of talent. I have none, so I don't identify myself by that. That's okay. Personality type. What's my personality type? 
I need to know my personality. Am I a D, an I, an S, a C on the disc test? Have you heard of that? If you're really advanced now, you go to the, the, that sort of weird one, the Enneagram, and now you've got all kinds of choices. And the, uh, I mean, the one upside of the Enneagram is before that, everyone in the world was one of four personality types. That was it, and now there's like, I don't know how many the Enneagram has. It's crazy. Anyway, the point is, we have this whole thing. That's how I identify who I am. What skills I have. All of these kind of accidental characteristics. Things that aren't of the essence of what it means to be a human being. I've staked my entire identity on. We moved away from identity being found in our common humanity. And being image bearers of God. Sons of Adam fallen with him. In fact, what's interesting about that is we've done that. We've gone so far with that that even when we read old guys, you know, the old dead guys who wrote before, we read our understanding into them. So I heard a sport, spiritual formation expert um, talking about how we grow spiritually. And, and I don't love the term spiritual formation, but the, I know there's a lot of good people trying to, to help in that area. And, and um, this guy said, look, when you read Calvin's Institutes, book one, chapter one, Calvin begins by saying... In order to know God, we have to know ourselves. In order to know ourselves, we have to know God. He says, we got to know myself, my identity. And then he's like, you got to take a personality test and you got to do this. I'm like, that's not what Calvin was talking about. John Calvin by the self did not mean what we mean post Sigmund Freud. He wasn't talking about that. By the self, he meant, if you want to know yourself, it goes on to define it, you were an image bearer of God, a son of Adam, who's fallen in sin. That's who you are. That's your identity. That's all he meant by the self. Who are you? A son of Adam. I said that to you women as well. Who are you? An image bearer of God. Who are you? Fallen in sin. Corrupt in Adam. Anything else? Well, if you're a believer... Renewed, reborn in Christ. That's who you are. That's what's most fundamental about you. Now we, though, ask people um, about their identity. We, we think about their profession. Well, who are you? Well, I'm a lawyer. I'm a teacher. Who are you? I'm a Republican. I'm a Democrat. Who are you? I'm black. I'm white. So who are you? What's your identity? If you're a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ, someone trusts in, in him, then your identity is found in Christ and his church. That's where it's found. You're an image bearer of God, fallen in Adam, redeemed in Christ, a member of his body, a member of the church. You ha your life is not your own. You've been bought with a price. Your old man is dead. You're a new creation in Christ. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. You've been baptized. You've received a new name. You don't belong to you anymore. You are now under the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's who you are. That's who you are. And Christ uh, didn't just save you as an individual. 
He saved you as a member of his body, the church, so that Jesus can say to Peter, after Peter makes the good confession, when Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. This is Matthew 16, incidentally. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus can say to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, Simon, son of John, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who's in heaven. You're getting it right who I am. You're getting it right. And so then he turns and says to him, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom. I'm going to build my church on you. Now notice that. I will build my church. He just states that to the apostles. Somehow we think that this concept of a church like is invented in the New Testament era. I will build my church. And the apostles go, okay. They don't stop and say, wait, 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 wait. What? What's church? We've never heard of one of those before. They don't because that word didn't drop out of thin air in the Greek. That word, ekklesia, I will build my church, my ekklesia, existed in the Greek translation of the Old Testament from which those folks were reading. It was all over the place. The ekklesia of Kyrios, of the Lord. The ekklesia of the Lord is all over the Old Testament. The assembly, the gathering of God's people. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. In Matthew 18, 15 through 20, when he talks about the community of the church, he doesn't, he gets going about if you, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. And if he listens, you've won your brother. And then he, he begins to move through. If he doesn't listen, then go tell two or three others, right? That the evidence might be established on um, the basis of two or three witnesses. He's quoting from the law there. And if he doesn't listen to them, tell it to the church, the assembly of God's people. Not shout it out a building, stand outside and say, hey, right? That's not what he's getting at. He's talking about the assembly of God's people. Tell it to the church. Jesus just expected the apostles would understand what that meant. Those people, the church, are our people. That's why we care about each other well enough that we address one another when we see each other in sin that is unrepentant, habitual kind of sin. We address it because you're our people. We care about each other. That's our group. Ephesians 5.25. What does Paul say? Husbands. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's the people for whom Christ died. But who is the church? I've already sort of defined it, but pretty vaguely. Who is the church? How do we define who she is? Well, let me tell you some things she's not. The church is not the building that the church meets in. That's the church's building. The church is not the preacher and the song leader. It's like Jordan came up and led led in song and prayer and scripture reading, and then I preach, and that's the church. And then you walk out and go, church was good today, or church wasn't very good today, which means Chad and Jordan stunk, or Chad and Jordan did a good job. As if you're assessing a performance like you're an audience. 
and we're performers. The church is not the elders. Well, the elders got together and we're the church all by ourselves. You, you, you can't be a church without members. <laughs> so who or what is the church and how do we define, how do we find the church really? How do we find it? Where do we find it? That's what I want to look at this afternoon. Notice that I, I, last week in the second service, I kept saying morning. Did I say it in the service too? Yeah, I tr- so I wrote in my notes, afternoon, real big. <laughs> That's what we're going to look at this afternoon. We were, we were really doing a kind of excursus on Hebrews 10, 19 to 25 as we continue through this text in a building campaign. So we have these words that identify the church in last week's text. Look at verse 19. Therefore, brothers, therefore, brothers. We could translate that brothers and sisters if we wanted, He's just identifying the people who are a part of the family of God, those who have been adopted in the son. They are the adopted sons of the father. And I use the language sons because sons are heirs. Therefore, brothers or brothers and sisters, family of God in Christ, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, And since we have a great priest, notice the language, over what? The house of God. Another term that he picks up. What's the house of God? See, well, the house is where God's family dwells and where God's holy presence dwells. The house is where God is worshipped. So we spent last week talking about the church's one foundation. And here's what I want to do today. I want to talk about the church that's built on top of that foundation. Like if you build a house, you lay a foundation, and you build a structure on top of it. Okay? The foundation is Jesus. Right? His person and work. That foundation is proclaimed by the apostles. Therefore, the apostles are called the foundation of the church, and they superintend that here. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, the chief cornerstone. But the foundation is Christ. There's a superstructure being built on top of that foundation that is Christ that's laid by the apostles and prophets. That superstructure being built on top of that foundation is the church, the house of God. So I want to talk about that. I want to talk about the church that Jesus is building. I know we're in a building campaign, so I should be talking about the church building that we'll be building. I'd rather talk about the church Jesus is building. So I have two points. One, who is the church? And two, where do I find the church? Who is the church and where do I find the church? So here's the first one. Who is the church? I've been defining this to some degree already. The church is the people of God. It's the people of God. The central promise of the covenant of grace, of God's gracious covenant, is that God will be our God and we will be his people. That is the substance of God's covenant grace. That is the central promise. Adam was God's people. I know it sounds strange to say that like a plural, but he's the federal head, the representative. So Adam was God's people. He was our federal head. God covenanted with him. If Adam had perfectly, personally, perpetually obeyed God, he would have merited eternal life. 
But Adam failed in the garden. He did not obey God's voice. He broke the covenant. And in Adam's fall, sinned we all. We were no longer God's people dwelling with him and blessed by him. We were kicked out of the garden. Do you guys remember that? Kicked out of the garden and cursed with death and separation from God. No longer under his blessing, in his presence, with him, but kicked out, separated from him, cursed with death. But at the moment of the curse, what's a bit startling is the first words when God pronounces the curse are a curse on Satan and a blessing for us. Grace to us. He says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He will bruise your heel. You will crush his head. There's a coming seed of the woman, the second Adam, who will, second Adam, who will conquer Satan, sin and death, who will restore God's blessing, who will succeed where the first Adam failed. The second Adam's coming, who will succeed where the first Adam failed. And the Old Testament is the unfolding of the promise of Jesus Christ to restore us as God's people, dwelling with God and under his blessing. The pro- that promise of blessing was narrowed with Abraham. Coming to mankind in Adam, the seed of the woman, narrowed with Abraham. The seed of the woman would come through Abraham's nation, Israel. So in Genesis 12, the Lord comes to Abram and and says to him, go to a land I'll give you and I'll make you a great nation. I'll bless you. I'll bless you. He says five times actually in in that passage in Genesis 12. I'll bless you. And he says that I'm going to make your name great. And you'll be a blessing. And your offspring, he goes on to say, will be a blessing to all the nations. And then in Genesis 17, we see the content of the promise narrowed a bit more. Look at Genesis 17. Genesis 17. For the sake of time, I'll start in verse 4. God had said to him, Abram fell on his face, verse 3, and God said to him, Genesis 17, 4, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I've made you the father of a multitude of nations. It's important for us to understand that when Abram, when God comes and sets Abram apart in Genesis 12, he's setting Abram apart in Genesis 12 to answer the problem we see in Genesis 1 through 11. That the whole world is going to hell. That it's corrupt. That it's ripped apart by sin. And he's setting Abram apart as a beginning to the answer to that problem that he promised in Genesis 3.15. There would be an offspring who will come through Adam's seed, through the woman. He's going to be a human being, in other words. There's an offspring who will come, Abram, through you. To your seed, from your nation that comes from your loins. So you'll be the father of many nations. He goes on to say to him, look at verse 5. No longer shall you become, oh, sorry, I read verse 5. Verse 6, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. That's a fascinating passage because if you remember in Genesis 1.28, after God creates Adam, 
God says, he, he, first thing God does is he blessed him. It says in Genesis 128, and God blessed him, blessed them, Adam and Eve. And it says, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Command, command that Adam's failing in. But notice what happens with Abram. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. That's what I mean by grace. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. Now notice verse 8. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. See, here's the summary I will be your God, and you will be my people. I will dwell with you, and you with me. Not only would Abraham's own nation be God's people, but Abraham would be the father of many nations who would be God's people. The seed of the woman, the son of Abraham, would save men from every tribe, tongue, and nation. So we see this promise at the fall in Genesis 3.15. We see this promise in the covenant with Abraham. We see the central promise in the covenant with Israel. In the Mosaic Covenant, when God comes to Israel in Exodus chapter 6, and he's setting them apart as a nation, in Exodus 6 and verse 7, he says, I will be your God, and you will be my people. In Leviticus 26, verses 11 and 12, God comes to the nation Israel under the covenant with Moses and says to them, I will be your God, you will be my people, and I will dwell with you and you with me. We also see this promise, central promise in the covenant with David. In 2 Samuel 7, verse 13 and 14, we read about the son of David who, to whom he would be the father and he would be a son. That's God being God and him being the people. But even more expressly, in 2 Samuel seven twenty four, he says to them, in the midst of the Davidic covenant, I will be your God and you will be my people. Finally, we see the central promise in the new covenant comes to them in jeremiah 31 you've broken the covenant with moses i'm making a new covenant with you jeremiah 31 33 and i will be your god and you will be my people every single covenant i will be your god you will be my people i will be your god you will be my people i will be your god you will be my people abraham Moses, David, every single one. How will that happen? The offspring of the woman. The offspring of Abraham. The son of David. That's how it will happen. When he cuts the new covenant, Jesus, the second Adam, succeeded where the first Adam failed. He is our federal head. He is God's son. He is God's people. Jesus is. In him, through faith in him and by the spirit, we are God's people. And God is our God. If you remember when God calls Israel out of Egypt, in Exodus 4, he says, Israel is my firstborn son. And then we hear the same thing said of the Christ. As the federal head of God's people. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. 
He is God's son. He is God's people. In him, through faith in him, and by the spirit, we are God's people, and God is our God. What should have been ours in Adam is ours in Christ. Lest you think I'm pushing that further than the New Testament pushes it, keep your, uh, keep your hand in Hebrews 10 and go to Revelation 21. Revelation 21. See the consummation of all things. The return of Christ. Revelation chapter 21. And look at verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Promised in Isaiah, incidentally. He's seeing it now. For the first heaven... And the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. That's the church, the people of Christ. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his what? People. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. See, thus being God's people and him being our God, dwelling with him eternally is the great promise of God's covenant, which is accomplished in Christ. We are his people and he is our God. You want to know what your identity is? There it is. There it is. Yours people in his son, Christ. He's your God. Whether we're absent from the body and present with the Lord, the church triumphant, or we are still walking here on earth, the church militant, we are God's people in Christ. We're Christians. We're members of Christ's family, his household. We're sons of God and brothers in Christ. Or sons and daughters in, uh, in God, of God and brothers and sisters in Christ, if you want me to be all-inclusive. Thus, the church is not the building we own or rent. Israel, as the people of God, we're, we're in the wilderness for 40 years. We've only been in the wilderness for eight months or so. No, not quite that many. Five months? Five months we've been in the wilderness? Since March 8th. I know that. We're in the wilderness. <laughs> That's not the right analogy, but you get the point, okay? It's a joke. Actually, we're in the wilderness until Christ's return as the people of God, so you know, biblically, according to Hebrews. The church is Christ's people. I want, and, and I want you to hear the way Hebrews describes Christ's people or the church. So look with me at Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 14. We're just going to go through Hebrews briefly. I want you to hear the descriptions of us. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 14. First it talks about the angels. Are they not all ministering spirits, the angels, sent out to serve? Now notice, the, listen to the, who they're serving. For the sake of those who are to what? Inherit salvation. You're the heirs of salvation. We're those who are the heirs of salvation. Look at chapter 2. Therefore, we must pay close, much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away. Listen, we are those who hear. We've received a word. We've heard a word. 
those who hear the word, those who are heirs of salvation. I can show you that in chapter 1 as well. But look at chapter 2 and verse 10. For it was fitting that he, that's the Father, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. What are we called there? Sons whom the Father is bringing to glory. Heirs of salvation, hearers of the word, sons of the Father being brought to glory. Verse 11, for he, Jesus, who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have, or really in the Greek it says are all of one. Contextually should be, I think, I don't like the SV here at all. It should be all of one Father. But we're called those who are what? Sanctified. Those who hear the word, those who are heirs of salvation, those who are sons of the Father being brought to glory, those who are sanctified. Look at chapter 2 and verse 11 again, the last part. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. You're called brothers of the Lord. Verse 16 of chapter 2. For surely it's not the angels he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. So we're the offspring of Abraham, the brothers, the sanctified, the sons of the Father being brought to glory, the heirs of salvation, those who hear the word. Look at verse 12 of chapter 2. I'm going back on this one intentionally. I will tell of your name to my brothers. This is Jesus speaking. In the midst of the congregation, the ecclesia, the assembly, the church, I will sing your praise. We're called a gathering or a congregation. Look at chapter 3 and verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers. Look at chapter 3 and verse 6. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. So were those who hear the word, those who are heirs of salvation, sons of the Father being brought to glory, those who are sanctified, brothers of the Lord, the gathering of or assembly of Christ's people, the offspring of Abraham, holy brothers who share in a heavenly calling, the house of God. Look at chapter 4 and verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. See, you're those who listened, those to whom the good news has come, come, those who received the gospel. Those who believe the gospel, verse 3, for we who believe, have believed, enter that rest. So we're those who received it and those who believe and therefore entered the rest. Look at verse 15. This is less, less complimentary. For we do not have a high priest who's able to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one in every respect, who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So we are those who are beset with weaknesses and sin who have need of the Lord. Go to chapter 5. 
And look at verse 9. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. We're called those who obey him. We're those who hear the word, those who are heirs of salvation, those who are sons of the Father being brought to glory, those who are, glo- who are sanctified, brothers of the Lord, the congregation or gathering of Christ, the offspring of Abraham, holy brothers who share in a heavenly calling, the house of God, those who have received the gospel, those who believed and rested in Christ, uh, those who beset with weakness and, weakness, um, and sin, those who obey Christ, those who have been enlightened. Look at chapter 6 and verse 4. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, have shared in the Holy Spirit, have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. That's all true of those who fall away. It's also true of those who remain. And in fact, true in the fullest sense for those who remain. Chapter 6 and verse 9, one of my favorites. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved. Just simply refers to them, the church, those who are loved by God. Those who are loved by God. Look at verse 10 of chapter 6. For God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. Now notice that there's two descriptors there. You are those who serve the saints, and you are those who are the saints. The holy ones. Heirs of the promise of Abraham. Look at verse 17. So, chapter 6. So, when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge, might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Were those running on the road to heaven, verse 19, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. If he's a forerunner, that means you're also doing what? Running behind him. Those who are running on the road to heaven. Those with a better hope than the old covenant are able to draw near to God. Chapter 7, verse 19. For the law, that's speaking of the Mosaic covenant, expressly really um, the sacrificial system, made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Those for whom Christ ever lives to make intercession. Look at chapter 7, verse 25. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Have you ever thought, what's my identity? I'm one of those for whom Christ always lives to make intercession. Christ's entire ministry is caught up with living to make intercession for you. Chapter 8 and verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Where those who have been purified for worship and service to God. Chapter 9 and verse 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience 
from dead works to serve the living God. We're members of the new covenant, chapter 9, verse 15. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant. So those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant or the old covenant. We're those who are eagerly awaiting Christ's return, chapter 9 and verse 28. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Who am I? I'm one of those who are eagerly waiting for him. I'm one of those for whom he ever lives to make intercession. I'm one of those he calls beloved, holy, perfected, a saint. I'm his people. I'm a part of his house. I'm his son. I'm an heir. Verse 10 of chapter 10. And by that will, the Father's will, we have been sanctified. Again, that phrase, we're sanctified. Chapter 10 and verse 14. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time. We're perfected. Listen to this language. Chapter, I mean, he goes on to say we're forgiven. Again, in verse 19, we're brothers. In 13.22, he calls us brothers again. In 10.19 and 20, we're those who have confidence to draw near to God. In 10.21, we're the house of God once again. In 10.32-34, we are those who suffer for the sake of others while we look forward to a better possession, a heavenly one. In 11.13-16, we're strangers and exiles on the earth, eagerly waiting for him. In Hebrews 11, verse 13, or 38, we are those of whom the world is not worthy. I mean, that's not one you want to put on your bumper sticker. <laughs> You're not worthy of me. That, that isn't the point. Of the, that is not the point of the text. In chapter 12, in verse 5 through 7, we're sons of the Father. That's why he disciplines us. In chapter 12 and verse 22, we're the heavenly Jerusalem. In chapter 12 and verse 23, we are the assembly of the firstborn, that is Jesus, who are enrolled in heaven. In chapter 12 and verse 28, we are those who have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. In chapter 13, 3, we are those in the body and thus sharing the condition of those who suffer in the body. In chapter 13, verse 7 and 17, we are those under, uh, that are, who are under under shepherds in the church. And in chapter 13 and verse 20, we are, the she- we are the sheep under Jesus, the great shepherd. That's a lot of descriptions of us in one book. They're glorious descriptions. All true only because of Jesus. So how do we pull the threads together of who we are? You really see two major threads. One, we are the church invisible. There is the gracious reality of who the church universal is, the church Catholic is, the Catholic universal, the church invisible, all those who are in Christ by the Spirit through faith everywhere on the earth and in heaven who have already passed and are with the Lord. That's who the church invisible is. They are God's people in Christ, whether on, in heaven or on earth. We're also Visible, that's the other big thread you see if you pay attention to the language. 
you hear all kinds of language that demonstrates some sort of visible, organized, confessional. I say confessional, meaning we're professing the same faith together. Visible, you can find us. That's how we serve one another and care for one another and seek, look, look after one another. We're, we're an assembly. We come together of God's people in Christ. We have some sort of organization because there are leaders and there are members. And that leads to my second point, where do we find the church? Where do we find the church? If that's who the church is, where do we find her? What I mean is that Christ has a kingdom of people, but how do I identify them? What's the geography of Christ's kingdom? See, if the geography of Christ's kingdom is the visible church, how do I identify its borders? How do I know where it is? Where do I locate the people of God? See, we talk about going to church. I'm going to church. As if the church is found in some particular location. And that instinct is right in one sense. The church does gather in some particular location. So you can go to church. Because you go to gather with the assembly. Folks who say this rightly understand that they ought to gather with the church body. They don't have the whole sense of what the church is, but they have some sense that's right about what it is. We hear some folks say the opposite. The other extreme, you guys have heard this? You are the church. You don't need to go to church. You are the church. That sentiment gets right the notion that the church is God's people and the visible people in that sense, everyone is in Christ, but then wrongly assumes there's no official visible gathering which one is a part of. Some folks comment on how good church was today. I can't think of anything that's good about that particular comment. <laughs> I've tried to think. I sat in my study and thought, what, what is good in, instinctually in that? I couldn't think of anything. So maybe if I'm being really gracious, I, I went out of the way to think, maybe what is meant is that there's an instinct there in which people should discern whether or not their church is being faithful. If that's what you mean by church was good, then you're probably saying the right thing. Our pastors are being faithful to the word of God. If you meant, I loved the light show today, you're missing it. Right? You're missing it. The pastor was humorous and made me feel good. Okay? You're missing it. Or perhaps what we're talking about in this series is what we get wrong. When we say something like, when will we build a church? Never. We will never, ever build a church. You guys hear that? Ever. Christ builds the church. We build no churches. We build buildings at which Christ's church might gather. The church is not an actual physical building. The se- there is something right about the sentiment. We do need a place to gather. We are God's people and we are ga- God's gathered people. And we do need a place to gather every Lord's day. And this is where um, really the, the first answer to where we find Christ's church. You want to know what it is? The first answer is this. Wherever God's people gather, that's where you find them. Hebrews 10.25, do not forsake the gathering of yourselves together. We're literally called gathering. That's what the Greek word means. We assemble or gather. The church is the visible gathering of Christ's people. We're the gathering of Christ's people in heaven and on earth. You can find us 
gather together for worship. You see that, by the way, in the old covenant church. Moses tells Pharaoh, no, we all have to go together and gather out there in the wilderness and worship God. That's what has to happen. We're a gathering. The apostles planted churches, which were gatherings of Christ's people. They could write letters to them, the church at Ephesus, the church at Philippi, the church at Rome, the church at Colossae, the church at Thessalonica. They could address the leaders to the elders. They could address deacons to the deacons. They could address particular women who were serving the church. Greet so-and-so, greet so-and-so. Thank Phoebe for her work. They were organized gatherings. That's how you find a church. Second, Christ's church is apostolic. What I mean by that is it's a visible gathering of Christ's church that participates in particular activities that are commanded by Christ, um, which, through which is preached a particular doctrine commanded by Christ and given by the apostles. Right? We are people who gather to hear the word from Christ himself and who sing songs which are led by Christ. Um, and we do that as we attend to the word the apostles have given. So look at Hebrews two eleven and 12. It's always a remarkable passage to me. Hebrews two eleven and 12. For he who sanctifies, that's Jesus, and those who are sanctified, that's us, all have one, really, Father, That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, now listen, this is Jesus saying to the Father, I will tell of your name to my brothers. Who tells you about the Father? The Son. Jesus does. In the midst of the congregation, the assembly, the church, I will sing your praise. Do you know who ultimately preaches in as much as the word is preached truthfully? Jesus does by the Spirit. You know who leads the singing in as much as the songs are true? Jesus does by the Spirit. Whenever it's wrong, it's me and Jordan. Keep that clear. Or Russell, Jason. Probably more when it's Russell and Jason than me. But the, 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 no, the, the church... The church is a creature of the word. It's what we are. We hear from Christ as the word of God is proclaimed in the Old Testament, New Testament. That's why you can say, long ago, brothers, at long ago, at many, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers and the prophets. And these last days, he's spoken to us in his son. We are led by Christ as we sing the word of God together. In this sense, we say the church is apostolic. We're built on the foundation of the word of God given to us by the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus being the chief cornerstone, Ephesians 2.20. We're identified as Christ's church when you find us together, preaching, praying, singing, and hearing sound doctrine. Further, Christ gave his church two visible words that mark us off. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. In baptism, you receive the family name as a member of the house. You're identified as Christ, and in communion with the Lord's Supper, you participate in the family meal that the church gathers around. So we're reminded that our foundation 
of our foundation is a family. The foundation of our family is Christ, his body and blood for us. We can be found together visibly in worship, participating in word and sacrament, prayer and song. So we can be found together and we can be found together doing the activities that Christ commanded us to do. You want to find Christ's church? Find a church where, where a gathering of people, where the gospel is being rightly preached and where the sacraments are being rightly administered. We finally can say the church, we can find the church in the world because she's holy. Hear that? She's holy. Christ's church is holy. Look at Hebrews 10, 22. Again, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for you who promises faithful and let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We are a family that pursues holiness together. We do so visibly. We worship together, verse 22. We hold fast our confession of faith together or hope together, verse 23. We gather together to stir one another up to love and good works, Verse 24, we can be found together, caring for one another, serving the saints, Hebrews 6, 10. Suffering the loss for the sake of other members of the body, Hebrews 10, 32-33. Further, we can be found together warning one another about sin and apostasy. In Hebrews 10, 26, he's going to say, for if we go on sinning deliberately, and he's going to warn us, and we warn one another. We come together to warn one another. See, if folks don't heed the warning, we exercise church discipline for the sake of their souls and for the sake of the holiness of the church. Matthew 18, 15 through 20 gets into that. 1 Corinthians 5 makes that abundantly clear. Finally, we're a family that has leaders who press us toward holiness. In other words, we're a holy family, and we have leaders who press us that direction. Look at Hebrews 13 and verse 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. You, hear, you want to hear the summary of my job? There it is. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of, the, of their way of life and imitate their faith. They're spurring you toward holiness. Look down at verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. What your job is, make it easy for us, right? I have to stand before God and give an account for your soul. So next time you're thinking about sin, help a brother out. (laughs) No, I'm kidding. That's not the main reason you should (laughs) at all. But this is who we are. We are Christ's holy, apostolic, visible assembly. We can be found wherever believers are gathered around the preaching of sound doctrine, the administration of Christ's sacraments, and the pursuit of holiness and church discipline. Do we need to own a building to do any of that? No. 
We don't need to build, own a building. We can do that in homes, backyards, rented facilities, whatever we need to do it in. So as we continue in this building campaign, I again want to make clear what we are doing and what we aren't doing. We are a church family looking to own our own homes so that we can't be easily displaced, so we can gather and worship, so we can shake our fists at the governor if we'd like to. We are not a people looking to own a building so we might become a church. We are God's people and he is our God. That's true whether we meet in a tent, a cave, or a cathedral. Our great privilege will never be found in the building we own. Though we want to own one, that won't be our great privilege. Our great privilege is found in being the people of God in Christ. That's our great privilege. Let me pray. Father, we give thanks for your love for us, for the work of your son on our behalf. Remind us that he is the church's one foundation. Cause us to remember who we are, the great privileges that we know in your son, by the working of your spirit, through faith, because you decreed it. May we give thanks and rejoice in that. And Father, as we travel down this road toward buildings, may we remember that we're your family, family of one another, brothers and sisters in Christ, the house of God, whether we own our own building or don't. May remember that our great privilege is found there. May we love one another, care for one another, stir one another up to love and good deeds, not forsake the gathering ourselves together. May we hold fast the confession of our hope together continue to trust you to lean the full weight of our souls upon your son knowing he is sufficient and may you be honored in Jesus name amen